one and all to season two, episode two of Horror Palooza. And Damien, it's all for you. My name is Sir Ian Dangerous, aka your Uncle Frank, and you can find me on Twitter at Sir Ian Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder, and on Instagram at Sir Ian Dangerous. Join me. Tweet me, hit me up, let me know what you think of the show. As you may know, if you've listened to episode one or season one of Horror Palooza, every October I set myself the task of watching 31 horror movies, one movie for every day of the month. And that's not all. I don't just have this marathon going on, I've got rules that I have to follow in choosing these movies. I can watch nothing, no movie that I have watched within the previous five years. Uh, Any multiples from the same franchise count as one. If I want to watch Friday the 13th, two through seven, it counts as one movie towards my marathon. I have to have at least three languages other than English represented in the 31 movies that I watch and at least one film from the previous eight decades. That means the teens, the aughts, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, and the 40s and before. I've got to have at least one movie from all of those. And of course, naturally, they must all be horror movies, and I have to watch them all in October. No waiting till November 1st to fill out the list. So those are my rules. And so far, I've been doing eh, pretty well. Uh, This podcast is dedicated to spreading the word about horror movies. Maybe I'll have watched some that you haven't seen. I do try to find some obscure ones as well as some well-known ones. Uh, If you haven't seen them, hopefully I can spread the word about them if they're worth a watch or not. Should you watch them? Should you avoid them? And also, I'm curious if you guys feel the same way as I do about them. If you watch them based on my recommendation or if you've already seen them, Tweet at me, hit me up, let me know what you think of these movies, or if you have any suggestions of ones for me to watch. Uh, This week, I've also, as part of the show, every week I do a top 10 list. This week, I'm also doing a top 10 list of the most horrific movie moments from my childhood, from non-R-rated movies. In other words, kids' movies, ostensibly kid movies, that had horror moments in them that have scarred me to this day, and I'm curious if any of that overlaps with your guys' childhood experiences. So, before I get into my second week of films, I want to thank, once again, my musical contributors. The Tiki Creeps wrote that opening song, and 414 Beg did the sound effects. They are both on iTunes, and the Tiki Tiki Creeps are at TikiCreeps.com. 414 Beg, you can find him on Instagram under 414BEG, 414Beg. Now, if you haven't, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button for Horror Palooza on your podcast app of choice. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc., etc. Whichever one you're listening to us on, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification so you know when we come out with a new one, and uh, and please make sure to share it as well. I would love as many people as possible to hear this show and thank you very much for checking us out we are also on the orbital jigsaw network of podcasts at orbitaljigsaw.com and as a little bit of self-promotion if you like pro wrestling you can check out the busted wide open podcast where nick howell and myself run down the news and hottest topics about wwe new japan etc 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 all of the pro wrestling fit to consume it's kind of like a sports center 
of pro wrestling if you like that kind of thing. However, if you are here for the horror movies, then we're going to get into that right now. Don't forget to tweet at me your suggestions for the most underrated horror movie. I'm going to be listing all of your suggestions on the final episode here of Horror Palooza for this season. And I want to know what the most underrated horror movies you think that are out there are. What do you think are movies that everyone should be watching and no one is talking about? I want to know what those movies are. So far on my podcast, on this show this year, so far in my marathon, I have watched The Scars of Dracula from 1970, Creep from 2004, The Lair of the White Worm from 1988, King of the Zombies from 1941, The Autopsy of Jane Doe from 2016, Bad Moon from 1996, and Hagazusa from 2017. So that means as far as my goals are concerned, I've watched movies from the 40s and before. I've watched the 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and the teens. So that means I've only got two more decades I've got to fill. That's the 50s and 60s. So I'm doing pretty good on my decades right now. All right. Uh, I watched a movie in German. So that's one of my three required languages other than English that I've got to watch. So, yeah, I still have two more languages to go and, and three weeks to do it in. So, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, so you have to keep, to keep listening, see if I, I got any further in my quota this week. So had some really strong movies in week two here, and I want to jump right into it and talk about the first one I watched on day eight, which was Overlord from 2018. I found it on uh, Epix, Epix, E-P-I-X, whatever you want to call it. You can, get it, uh, you can actually get a, a free trial on Amazon Prime if you want and check them out. Uh, the director was Julius Avery. One of his first, his first major film, and he was doing it for Bad Robot uh, Productions here. And you know, it's funny because I I do watch movies that are not necessarily purely horror movies, but have horror elements. This is definitely an action horror film more than it is like a straight up horror film. It has horror aspects to it, body horror, and it's pretty grisly in some scenes. But it is, I would describe it more as. A, a like a hardcore uh, World War II comic book action film where it is it takes place in World War II, the 101st Airborne, they're getting dropped into Germany and a very small crew of guys survive, meet up and have to go take out a German uh, radar, so a radio station and, uh, and then horrific stuff happens once they get there. They find there's some like secret Nazi experiments and you get some like a different take on Nazi zombies basically in this movie. Uh, but I would describe it even with all that as more of a horror action film. It's very action packed. It's, um, it's, it's, it's like a B movie that feels like a big box office movie. It's like a B plus movie. Um, unfortunately, I also kind of felt like it had, it was so ambitious and it, it we wanted to go so far, but it just didn't, quite have the budget to do it. it it felt like it just didn't quite get there in the third act but i still would really recommend this movie because it is a lot of fun if you just want to see like a good splattery badass action horror movie you really can't go wrong with this one um the airdrop scene when they're dropping into normandy is i think one of the best most visually arresting of those scenes I've ever seen. And I, I've seen a lot of airdrop scenes. I love World War II movies as well. And this is one of the most intense ones I've seen. It was really well done, well edited, well directed. Um, there's a bunch of really well edited and well shot 
uh, parts of this movie. So from a technical standpoint, very, very good movie. Um, and as I said, some really good gore and body horror moments. There's, there's one moment that in particular about uh, half, two-thirds of the way through that to me promised a lot more. And they never quite paid it off, but it was just such a great body horror, like jump out of your seat, cover your face moment that uh, definitely worth calling out. Uh, it's fun, it's light, it's brutal in the best ways. Yeah, it's just a fun action movie. And I feel like it went under everyone's radar because they didn't sell it very well at the box office. People didn't really know what this movie was when it came out. And I really feel like had people had a better idea of what it was, had it been sold better, had it been promoted better, more people would know about this movie. And I think more people should know about this movie. It's a, it's a, it's a little gem. As I said, I don't think that it's a full-on A just because it didn't, it just couldn't quite get where it wanted to go, but still very solid, worth a watch. And also, as a little aside, uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's son, Wyatt, uh, Wyatt Russell is in this movie. And uh, I didn't recognize who he was at first. And then about halfway through the movie, I was like, that kid looks so much like Kurt Russell. <laughs> he acts so much like Kurt Russell. It is kids, Kurt Russell's kid. And he's great in this. And I think he, he might have a, a pretty good career going because he, uh, he was one of the better parts of this movie. So yeah, Overlord, worth a look. On day nine, also a movie really worth a look, but also one that I don't know if I would necessarily say is a straight-up horror film, and that is Only Lovers Left Alive from 2013. I bought it this year on Blu-ray. I was, I was gifted it, actually, on Blu-ray, and I'm very grateful for that gift because it was a wonderful movie. You can rent it online as well. It's directed by Jim Jarmusch, and if you don't know who that is, he's uh, very much in, like the indie uh, indie filmmaker. He's an indie filmmaker's indie filmmaker, uh, and he's, to, to, in my opinion, he's kind of hit and miss. This is one of his hits. This is absolutely one of his best films, if not his best film, uh, certainly since at least Dead Man. Uh, this is, I, I, as I said, I can barely call it a horror film, but it is about vampires. Uh, the two main characters are these long, long-time vampire lovers played by Tom Hiddleston, who you may know as Loki in the Marvel movies, and Tilda Swinton, who you may, if you watch the Marvel movies, you may know as the Ancient One from Doctor Strange, but you also know her from tons and tons of other movies. Both of them have been in tons of movies, and they're perfectly cast here because they really are both barely human, uh, and I mean that in the best way in terms of just their appearance and the way that they carry themselves. They have this incredible otherworldly feel to them naturally. And so you buy that they're vampires the first second that you see them. And they reunite in Detroit in this movie. And the whole movie is just about them reconnecting after years apart and uh, discussing philosophy and, um, and time and existence as it's viewed through their lens of immortality and it's a beautiful melancholy movie it's like watching two rock stars who never grew old if you ever watch like old documentary footage of the rolling stones in their like most debaucherous years this is like imagine those guys never got old and you wind the tape forward 200 years what would they be doing would they would they still be as magnetic and engaging and this movie says yes watch this and it's true you can have these two people in a room it's kind of like um Kind of like the movie Before Sunrise, only it's, only it's like really, really Before Sunrise, because there can be no sunrise. You have to go to your coffins or, you know, your nice big dark bedroom. Um, and it's, 
it's beautiful way to watch them just interact. Like it's somehow it's engaging for the entire movie. They have some plot that that gets in there as well, but most of the movie is a lot just people talking, and it's wonderful. It's engaging, and uh, it's it's hard to look away because it it is just so arresting. Um, also, a special shout out to whoever did the set design and prop the prop department, which I know Jim Jarmusch had a heavy hand in, but it's incredible. The, every frame is just chock full of so much cool stuff that's lying around the houses of these two vampires because they have been collecting stuff for decades and decades and decades and you would imagine that they got a whole bunch of cool stuff and you actually see how they collect some of the stuff in the movie but there is just such cool stuff littered around every scene that you just want to you want to pause and be like what is that what is that Uh, and it makes these living spaces really look like they had become these accumulations of cool uh, for these like hermit-like vampires. So that's awesome. Also, the night shots in the movie. Of course, filmed completely at night. There's a lot of scenes where they're out driving around through Detroit, and it's totally empty. And it just it feels, for those of us who are night owls and who've been out in the streets of a major city late at night and how weird it is to see a city that during the day is crawling with cars and people and to go out onto those streets in the middle of the night in the glow of the streetlights and this, the quiet of these open spaces, the open concrete spaces, uh, and how weird and creepy that is. The movie captures that perfectly, and uh, and Detroit makes it extra kind of haunted feeling because it is. It was filmed at a time when Detroit was really on the downturn. It was really kind of a haunted city, uh, and so the way that it's shot and portrayed in this movie is spot on. And all of you night owls watching this movie will completely get that feeling. Uh, it is difficult to describe this movie because it is it does feel like kind of an experience. Um, you have to experience it to really understand. And I highly recommend it. But maybe not if you're looking for like a scary horror film. Uh, but if you're looking for a genre film, something that, that does fall into the genre but is just a good movie, then this is one for you. Only Lovers Left Alive. Very, very highly recommended. Beautiful, beautiful film. On day 10 went right back to more of the thriller kind of thing. Next of Kin from 1982. It's an Australian film directed by Tony Williams with a score by Klaus Schulze, who was the original drummer for Tangerine Dream. He's a major figurehead in electronic music. The the music in this movie is super cool. Um, I actually found this movie because I read an interview where Quentin Tarantino said it was his favorite Australian film. Uh, and he didn't describe it as a horror film, but it was in the horror section. So I went for it. And uh, it's, it does fall into like the Ozploitation genre of films where uh, you can't, I couldn't call it a straight up horror film, but I don't know what else I could call it because it is, it, it, it's confusing. Is it a stalker film? Is it a ghost story, a, a whodunit, like a murder mystery? Is it a story of madness, of insanity? Is it a haunted house film? If you're watching this movie cold, you're not going to know what it is as long as the main character doesn't know because it's, it's trying to make you wonder what it is. And it's basically about a young woman who returns to the retirement home that was owned by her recently deceased mother and she tries to take it over, wants to sell it, and then weird things start to happen in the retirement home. People start to die and some of the secrets of the past begin to be uncovered. Ooh, but... 
That's the thing. You don't know what secrets they are. If there's ghosts, if there's a, a madman who's stalking her or something else, you don't know the entire time in this movie. And they, the brilliance of this movie is the tension build, how it builds tension. It's extremely Hitchcockian. And it's, it's a clinic in building tension. I feel like when it paid it off, um, it, it goes really hard. Once it, once it really reveals what's really happening, it goes real hard, real fast, and then it ends. Um, in hindsight, I feel like it was a little bit light on the payoff because it spends so much time on the build. But at the same time, I, it, was a really, it I, was a really strong ending still. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth a watch especially if you love having your strings pulled by a movie. Uh, as I said, it, it is very Hitchcockian, but Hitchcock was very Hollywood. He was very slick. This movie doesn't feel like that. It feels like a gritty Australian movie made by the kind of auteurs that came out of Australia. People like George Miller gave you, uh, like Philip Brophy with Body Melt, like where it's just a little goony. It's a little bit off. And uh, so it's, it's worth checking out as a genre film from that time as something that's well made a filmmaker who's trying a lot of techniques to to freak you out to build up this tension uh so worth a look also if you ever watch the movies uh, the wolf creek movies the killer from that is actually the male love interest in this movie so strange little crossover uh between those two but yeah worth a look worth a look if you uh if you want a good tense thriller of a movie that's next of kin uh you can find it on shutter right now actually so shutter has next of kin if you're subscribed to that service day 11 day 11 i watched the new netflix movie the 2019 netflix movie in the tall grass which was written and directed by vincenzo not uh you have to forgive me for the last name pronunciation natalie natalie i'm not sure vincenzo n we'll call him for right now uh he also directed cube and splice and this is tough because it's, it's worth a look. It is a, a movie that's worth a look, but it is deeply flawed, and it's all Vincenzo's fault. It's all the director's fault because he did take a two-part novella that was written by Stephen King and his son, Joe Hill, and that was originally published in Vanity Fair over two months in June and July of 2012. And he basically fluffed out this short story into a feature length, and the stuff that he added to fluff it out is absolutely, inarguably, the weakest part of this movie. And it's unfortunate because it becomes some of the major stuff in this movie. Then the premise is simple. It's a couple that stops by the roadside on a cross-country trip, and they are lured into a field of 10-foot-tall grass. And then they shortly find out they can't get back out, and hilarity ensues. Uh, that's pretty much the premise of the short story as well, where the movie goes... It pretty quickly diverges from the short story and does its own thing, which involves, I don't want to spoil too much, but it involves uh, some time travel aspects and fleshed out characters, characters who aren't even in the book. Uh, there's a whole theme of redemption and choice in this movie that didn't exist in the book either. That's actually, I think, the stronger part of, uh, of Vincenzo's work here is his thematic stuff. Unfortunately, the the other stuff doesn't work quite as well, and it's largely because he just doesn't he isn't capable of pulling it off. Um, this the original story was simple; it was straightforward, it was inexplicable, and it was creepy. And the movie uh, adds a lot of elements that were unexplained in the book, 
and there it just wasn't there and it doesn't it doesn't need it uh as with many stephen king properties the humans are as bad if not more terrifying than the inhuman or supernatural element but that is something that was added in the movie from the book where it was much more it's just the supernatural stuff is just crazy um so as i said the themes of choice and redemption when he's he explores this the meaning of choice and uh, and in this movie, that's some of the best stuff, but it also is a bit confusing because the way that he presents it uh, with the nature of these characters, it could almost be taken as a pro-life message. Luckily, I don't feel like he came down on either side of that because he was so explicit about choices and making choices uh, and making choices, being able to make your own choices, being a stronger theme than coming down on either side of that particular debate. But I see how people could interpret either way based on what is presented. So this movie does have a twist, a few twists actually, but once the conceit of what is actually happening in the grass is revealed, um, which you could argue happens a little bit too soon because there's just a lot of movie here, there's really not much more to show. You kind of It's kind of on rails from that point. And it's just connecting the dots till the end of the movie, which means that the second half or the last third is a little bit, if not dry, then a little flat. Uh, becomes a little bit repetitive. There's a lot of people calling each other's names, etc. And it starts to not follow its own rules. It makes a lot of rules and then breaks them or tweaks them or messes with them. And that's frustrating. Um, I don't want to sound like I'm all negative on this movie because I'm really not. It's very watchable. It's engaging. The performances are really solid. There's some subpar CGI in a few scenes, but aside from that, it looks great. And there is a Lovecraftian moment about two-thirds of the way through that is genuinely, truly horrifying and jaw-dropping. And there's some other scenes of some really grisly stuff, and there's a scene out of the book that I'm not going to spoil, but it's pretty hardcore. So there is stuff worth watching in this movie. It is worth checking out, but just temper your expectations. It's not perfect, uh, and there's, there's definitely some deep flaws in this movie that could prevent you from really, really enjoying it. But, uh, but still, worth a look. Uh, also, there's quite a bit of connective tissue between this and Stephen King's Children of the Corn, but whether it's the, the religious stuff, the old magic stuff, uh, young adults and their tribulations in a big field of plants, that kind of thing. Um, luckily, it is a better movie than the first Children of the Corn film from back in 1984, but I would put it right about as good as like the 2009 Children of the Corn TV remake, which is actually pretty solid. So, uh, In the Tall Grass, out on Netflix right now if you want to check that out. Day 12, though, good luck finding this movie. It's called Possession, and this is a movie that I'd heard about a lot over the years, and had never really been able to get my hands on because it's just really hard to find. You can get it on Blu-ray on Amazon, but it's pretty expensive. Uh, aside from that, good luck finding it. It is, uh, it is not on any streaming services. Even you know people, they say to go look for it on YouTube. And unless you really dig deep, you can't find a good copy of it in any sort of complete, uh, complete form. Uh, I eventually got my hands on it, and I won't say how, but... I did finally get a hold of 1981's Possession, starring Sam Neill and Isabella Gianni, and directed by another name I'm going to completely screw up, uh, Andrzej Zulowski. So excuse my pronunciation there. Wow, this movie, it took a lot of processing 
to get after after I watched it. It's definitely a uh, it's a hammer blow to the forehead to call this movie hysterical is an understatement. And I'm not talking hysterical like laughter. I'm talking about the literal root of the word hysterical uh, as, as it means, you know, craziness typically centered around female madness. Uh, I think that if you took the root of hysteria and, disca- and described the movie this, that way, it's the best way to describe it because it's scripted like a Beckett play only without the light touch. <laughs> it's like it's been, uh, the script is like it's been translated from French to German to English without the benefit of human understandings of speech patterns. It's a really obtuse script, but it's because they're not speaking like normal humans would speak. They're speaking in uh, just completely unedited, almost just absolute directness. Uh, it's hard to describe unless you see, unless you see the movie, but uh, the, just the way people interact in this film is batshit insane. And batshit insane is a term I'm going to come back to a lot when I describe this movie. Uh, the best way I can describe the experience of watching it is like watching an Ingmar Bergman film on mescaline, meeting Dave, Lin- Dave Lynch's dream logic, and then Cronenberg's uh, early 80s misogyny and body horror. And then you throw an added dose of post 70s german pretentiousness it's just it's freaking surreal uh and i bring up i bring up cronenberg in that comparison because there are a lot of similarities to cronenberg's the brood because cronenberg had a nasty divorce and made the brood uh zulowski had a nasty divorce and he made possession and it it really is about the director's portrayal of women after a nasty breakup and you know that's it's it makes it a whole different film when you look at it from that perspective you could just watch it as a fever dream of a couple breaking up uh having a nasty messy divorce or you could look at it as a really really angry guy directing a film about how angry he is at himself and his ex-wife um it, there's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a gorgeous movie. The cinematography is incredible. These wide-angle, deep-focused shots, it makes everything just look and feel huge. And to say that the actors are brilliant is an understatement. I've never, ever seen Sam Neill be this raw. Usually he's known for being a little bit more icy, but he is so raw in this movie. And even he is blown away by Isabella Gianni, who just goes balls to the wall in this movie i don't know if i've ever seen a female performance this just absolutely out there gonzo um raw emotional she's there's a scene in this movie in a subway tunnel where she has a freak out it may be the furthest i've ever seen an actress go emotionally on film and i wish i was being hyperbolic about that um this movie, I mean, maybe some of the performances, like uh, some of the performances, like Lars von Trier movies, but this is just, this is another level. She is on another level in this movie. I can see why people freaked out over her performance when this movie first came out. And there is a, uh, I don't know if I would call it a uh, urban legend, but there is, it's, fairly commonly known that she may have attempted suicide after this movie because it, she was so emotionally exhausted and drained and messed up. And it wouldn't surprise me 
at all if that were the case because I can't imagine how you could be making this movie for months and not be an absolute mess after making it. It's obviously made by a brilliant filmmaker who just gives zero fucks if you get what he's trying to do. Uh, It feels like he has a bunch of big ideas. I don't know if any of them are really cogently transmitted other than these themes of jealousy and rage and female inexplicability and capriciousness and and this self-destruction due to inability to connect with another person. Um, you can certainly read into it allegories about repressed desires and the dissolution and reformation of a family unit, but it's so thickly and hyperactively laid on that sometimes it just, sometimes, most of the movie, it's just overwrought. It's just almost too much. And processing what the movie is trying to say and where it's going is difficult to say the least. This is one that I, I don't know if I ever want to watch again, but I might have to watch again just to wrap my head around it. Um, because I know this is an extremely, (laughs) it's, it's an awesome movie, but it's also a very, very difficult movie. Uh, and I have to also say that one of the most gonzo insane horror scenes I've ever seen is in this movie. If people, most of the movie, you're going to be wondering, wait, is this a horror film? Just wait. There's a scene, there's a few scenes late in this movie that absolutely make it a horror film. Uh, Just one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And you can see why it was banned in Britain for a while. It's, this movie's nuts. And if you are any kind of cinephile, you need to watch this movie. Just period, hard stop. It is, it is an explosion of cinema. Um, very difficult to watch for multiple reasons. And I, I yeah, I, I really can't say anything more about that. It has left me stumped, stunned and stumped. Possession from 1981. Check it out. Brace yourself. Um, and make sure you, you've got a, a plan afterwards <laughs> on how to calm down. Uh, so day 13, moving on to day 13, I came down a little bit with Carnival of Souls from 1962. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. This is an all-time classic. I hadn't seen it in 15, 20 years and had forgotten most of it and got a whole new movie out of it when I watched it this time, read a whole new thing into it. It, is a, uh, it was written, directed, and produced by Herc Harvey, who also plays the main ghoul in it, actually, if you've ever seen this movie. He's, he's the main uh, spook in this movie and he was just a he just did industrial films then one day got he was he went out on a trip back from utah saw a giant abandoned theme park by the side of the road and said i want to shoot a movie where they we have scenes there because it would be creepy and rustled up a bunch of money and made it happen and it's this like indie twilight zone-esque movie and it didn't get much love when it first came out in 62 it was just packed in with as a as a b-movie with another movie as like a twofer. Uh, it's since become a cult classic, and for a good reason. It's for the fact that it's an indie film, it's beautiful. It reminds, it reminds me of German Expressionism, uh, very cabinet of Dr. Caligari, not quite as far down the rabbit hole as that movie, but it's reminiscent of it for sure. It's crazy how well shot this movie is for the budget. The lighting in some scenes is absolutely amazing. It's about a young woman who prefers to be alone. She gets into a deadly accident where she is the sole survivor. And then afterwards, 
she pretty much brushes it off, moves to another town for a job, but then finds that she's getting stalked by this ghoulish figure played by Herc Harvey. And, uh, and then she's strangely drawn to this abandoned bathhouse amusement park, which is outside the city limits, which of course is the one that, that Harvey saw as he was driving back from a business trip. Um, I will say this, it, if you've never seen a movie from this era before, that Foley can be a little obtrusive. Uh, they were obviously adding sound effects back in afterwards, and it's, it doesn't match up to the film very well, but just deal with it because it was made on the DL. And uh, in certain scenes, they nail the sound. It's integral to the creepiness, and the sound really works well. There's also an organ score by Gene Moore that is unbelievably good and sets the atmosphere. It's totally chilling. And... Another interesting aspect of this movie is as you watch this, you can see in like the guerrilla style of filmmaking and the shots and the, the black and white cinematography where George Romero got his feel from in Night of the Living Dead. There's definitely a similar feel between those two movies. I think Night of the Living Dead could be argued is a direct descendant from this movie uh, in terms of tone. The male lead in this movie, it's... It, you know, some of the horror in this movie isn't just the ghoul and the and the, the the fact she's getting stalked by these supernatural forces and all the other things that goes on. It's also the fact that it's the male lead in this is this obnoxious, slimy, rapey scumbag. And a number of scenes, the horror comes from her being forced to put up with his Pepe Le Pew style advances in order to not be alone. She doesn't want to be alone at a certain point in this movie because of all the things that are happening. And she's been so dissociated from humanity that this is the only guy she can go to. And it's just, it gets, it's, it's skin crawling. Um, and the acting by the secondary characters in this movie is kind of questionable across the board. But luckily, uh, Candace Hillegas, who plays the lead role, uh, is Lee Strasberg trained. And she is excellent. She's extremely striking. She has this haunting gaze to her. And this was virtually her only major role. And that's a tragedy because she's, she is absolutely the thing that keeps you invested in this entire movie. She is arresting. She should have been a huge star. I can't believe that she wasn't uh, because she's, she's great. So what's crazy about watching the movie this time is that I got a whole different thing out of it that I, I don't think was the intention of the filmmakers because I don't, it wasn't really discussed at the time. And it certainly wasn't something that was, uh, I don't believe, really uh, prevalent in society. And that was PTSD. Um, you know, th- this, is a, this movie is a tr- almost note for note uh, a treatise on the way in which society marginalizes, uh, trivializes, and ultimately rejects and, and fails people who are suffering from mental illnesses and issues and PTSD. There's scenes in this movie where she's just straight up has textbook dissociative episodes uh, where all the sound goes out and people can't see her and she feels like she's alone in the world. Uh, there's, a, there's a doctor in the movie and even this doctor says she's imagining things. Though, oh, all the stuff that all, you're, you're feeling and sensing, you're imagining things. And then he goes and he admits he's not a psychologist, but he's giving her psychological advice that's terrible. Uh, there's a minister in the movie, and he rejects her because she has an episode in the church, and he feels that he's been that she's been disrespectful of his church, uh, and so he he kicks her out. He says, oh, "I was still here to help you, but get the hell out of my church." It it, it feels like uh, you know she is someone who is suffering from either mental illness or PTSD throughout this entire movie, 
and everyone is just is either just trying to sleep with her if it's the male lead or brushing her off whether it's the doctor or the priest or anyone else so that really hit me hard and and much like uh, a lot of recent movies where i realized once there was a deeper theme to it it changed the whole movie and made it i think even more important and impactful like it follows or the babadook especially uh, this movie, once I viewed it through that lens, even though it may not have been the intention of the filmmakers, I thought that it just it, it fit so well uh, across the board with this movie that I don't know if it was subconscious. I don't even know if maybe it was their intention. Uh, I certainly haven't read anything to say what they thought the intention of this movie was other than to make a creepy movie. But if you look at the movie in that way, uh, it, it goes from being a really nice, haunting, creepy little ghost story to being a really powerful movie. So I was really pleasantly surprised on my second time watching uh, The Carnival of Souls from 1962. So really check that one out. And finally, on day 14, oh, I've been waiting to watch this one for a couple of months. I watched Midsummer, which is spelled M-I-D-S-O-M-M-A-R if you're searching for it. It came out in 2019. It's just now become a rental on a bunch of platforms and supposedly the director's cut is going to be coming out on Apple TV, although I wasn't able to find it. I'd be very curious to watch it, although at two and a half hours in its base cut and three hours in the director's cut, the two and a half hours, it felt like a long movie. So I'd be very curious to see what they added for the director's cut. Um, wow, this movie. So it was written and directed by Ari Aster, who you may know from Hereditary, which I thought was a great movie with an absolutely god-awful last five minutes where he gave... All, he basically gave everything away in the last five minutes of Hereditary. Uh, but if you cut out the, <laughs> the let me explain the whole movie monologue from the end of Hereditary, Hereditary is an absolute lights-out amazing horror film. Uh, this is a totally different animal. But yet, at the same time, I can see the connective tissue here as well. Uh, fucking cults, man. Fucking cults. Um, and this is also a breakup movie. Uh, more than it is like a straightforward horror movie. Although, unlike Possession and uh, and The Brood, I didn't feel like the director had as much <laughs> misogyny and hatred towards women after his breakup. I almost felt like he had more sympathy, maybe some guilt involved as well. Um, so the movie's about a group of Americans that accompany their friend to his Swedish commune family gathering. Uh, most of the story centers around Two of the Americans, uh, the main character is this girl who's just lost her family and her fracturing relationship with her boyfriend who comes along as well. And the social dynamics are extremely well done. There's some really accurate and really uncomfortable portrayals of a relationship in decline. It's really honest in that sense. Anyone who's ever been through this kind of declining relationship where it's just, it's become a little codependent, it's become toxic, and you can't break away, but you can't, you really can't stay in it anymore. Anyone who's been in those, one of those kinds of situations uh, is going to feel uncomfortable through most of this movie because they really hit that nail straight on the head. Let me be clear. This is not a date movie. Don't go to this with your significant other unless you guys are rock solid because you're going to feel bad and gross coming out of this movie just from the relationships dynamics, especially from the relationships dynamics. Um, no one is terribly likable in this movie. The, the best you get 
is the main character who is someone that you understand the motivations of, but none of the main characters really seem to like each other that much. And that lends to an uns- in, like an incessant feeling of being uneasy, but it also it makes it hard to engage for long stretches of the movie because you really just you want something to start happening to these people. And uh, oh, it does. Oh, it does. If you hang in there, oh, it it it. Uh, oh boy, it definitely does. Um, and he, Aster, same kind of pace that he did in Hereditary, where it it goes at its own pace and. It'll go from things just very slowly happening to boom, something major will happen and it'll be wildly shocking because it will come out of nowhere. He uses the same kind of quiet spells and these unflinching, almost exploitative moments of grisliness. And uh, there is these uncomfortable, long, wide shots where the camera doesn't move and you just, you just see things matter-of-factly. And then all of a sudden, it will only move when it has to to catch a character and it just it really does under cut under under uh, underscore the uneasiness and just the tension in this movie which just builds and builds and builds and you just feel this knot in your stomach the entire freaking movie um and much like next of kin looking back on the end i don't know if it paid off all of that tension but man did it it really does uh it does unsettle you by the time it is done. Um, the closest thing I can say to this movie, in fact, almost, almost note for note, it would be the original Wicker Man, which this movie is very similar to um, with its depiction of pagan cults and that kind of thing. Um, there is this, that, so that slow inevitability that I was talking about, that you know what's going to happen from the second that they get to this cult village. Like just from the description of the movie, you're like, all right, I know what's going to happen. But to watch it play out in its own time, at its own pace, it's like watching a car crash in super slow motion. You just cannot, you can't look away. And it's so, that's where the horror is. Just you're watching everything fall apart in slow motion. And yeah, it leaves you with this knot in your gut afterwards. The pacing's not for everyone. It's not scary so much as just stomach-turningly disturbing. Um but it is, it is inarguably a very, very well done movie. And uh, yeah, don't watch this with your boyfriend and or girlfriend. Don't just don't do it. It would be a bad idea. Big time. And don't trust wide-eyed, smiley, happy people either. Um, I've, I, that cults hit me kind of hard <laughs> for, for personal reasons. I, I don't like cults. They're one of the things that one of the few things that gives me the heebie-jeebies in movies and uh yeah this one this one got me good with the heebie-jeebies with these uh these goddamn swedish hippies oh swedish hippies forget it no thank you all right so that is day 14 midsummer that was week two of horror palooza the horror palooza marathon has rolled on after the second week i've managed to knock out another decade i watched the 1960s with carnival of souls so I have knocked out another one, but I'm still, I didn't, I didn't watch any foreign language films this one. So uh, I've only got, I got another decade down, but I still got two more languages to go. So I've got to get one more decade and two languages in two weeks. So I, I'm pretty sure I got this. I'm pretty sure I got this, but you, know, you never know. You never know. We're off to a good start. Uh, so do not forget to tweet me your underrated horror movies. Uh, not only your underrated horror movies, but also 
I'd love it if you shot back at me about my top 10 list this week, which I'm about to get into, the top 10 most horrific movie moments from my childhood, my personal childhood. So uh, let me get into that right now. The top 10 horrific movie moments from my childhood. Now, the, the fun part about this was I couldn't pick R-rated movies. I've got honorable mentions from like Friday the 13th Part 3, which uh, when I was a kid, I accidentally was exposed to Friday the 13th Part 3 they were watching it on a TV as I walked into the room as a young, young, young kid. And I didn't know until years and years later that that's what I saw. It was, for, it was the scene where Jason shoots the lady in the eye with the crossbow and she falls into the water. And it was burned into my memory for decades afterwards. And it wasn't until I finally watched part three again that I went, oh my God, that's the movie that messed me up for years as a kid. Because I saw that. I saw that way too early. I had no idea what even I was watching, but it, it destroyed me. And uh, now I watch it and laugh, so go figure. Time heals all wounds. Uh, also, the dogs, yeah, the dog scene in The Thing was absolutely mind-blowing as a kid, just really haunted my nightmares for, for most of the time I grew up. Uh, that just, I, I had no idea. That and also the, uh, the protruding tentacle from Jeffrey Combs's forehead in From Beyond. Somehow I, I saw that somewhere as a kid. Had no idea what it was, but it messed me up. Saw it years and years later and was like, this movie's amazing. Uh, so that Pennywise from It, of course, destroyed everyone of my generation, although now we look at it and it's a horrible miniseries. He's the best thing about it, but he's kind of goofy compared to what they did with the new Pennywise, which I think they knocked out of the park, uh, except for the end of, of It too, but... Um, also the cover of in the company of wolves and evil dead. Every time I would go into the, uh, the video store, remember those, everybody, the VHS video store, you'd go in there and they had all the aisles where the, where the movies were that you could rent. Uh, yeah, those were the days, uh, as a kid, you know, you could walk anywhere you wanted in the store, but you went, if you were a kid, if you were a young kid and you wandered into the horror section, you were going to see some shit that you weren't supposed to see. So of course I went there every time we went to the video store, of course. And, Always the two covers that I would, I would be terrified that I would see, but of course I'd go and try to find every time, was In the Company of Wolves and Evil Dead. The covers of those, the, the inner company, In the Company of Wolves where the guy is screaming and the wolf snout is coming out of his mouth on the cover. And of course Evil Dead with the lady getting dragged under the ground and screaming for help. Uh, both just totally affected me as a kid, but... I can't count those because they're not kids' movies. They're rated R horror films. Uh, so I'm going to count down the top 10 moments in movies. They, see, there's a weird thing where people from my generation feel like, for some reason, we were punished as children because our, our kids' films, when we were growing up, were just gnarly. And, and I don't know that you can really argue that there's been movies since then that are kids' movies that are as gnarly as what happened in the 80s where they were putting out movies that were G and PG that really should not have been. I mean, they were so hardcore at one point, they had to make a new rating, PG-13, because some of these PG movies were too hardcore. That's how gnarly it was. So I would argue some of these, uh, you know, y'all who grew up in the era post this, please tweet me at Skinless Wonder, at Sir Ian Dangerous, and let me know if there were movies, kids' movies, that came out after this era that messed you up as a kid because I really want to know what they are. I want to, I want to see if this trend has continued or if this was just like just my lucky generation that got screwed up by movies 
when we were young. So uh, no more messing around. Here's the top 10 list. I'm not going to mention a couple that I think a lot of people are going to yell at me about, but this is, this is my list. It's about my childhood. Uh, I was never freaked out by the tunnel scene in Willy Wonka. It just never, it never freaked me out. I don't know what to tell you. It was just, I was like, oh, it was weird. And I moved on and I never saw Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So large Marge didn't get me. Uh, and, and by the time I watched it, she didn't freak me out at all. Cause it just looked like bad claymation. But so those two are not on this list and that's why, but number 10, and this is at number 10, because this was late in the game for me. This is about the time that I stopped being scared of this kind of stuff. Um, but it still got me the first time I watched it. It gave me the willies for a while. And that was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when Judge Doom's eyes pop out and become daggers. Uh, right, was you, right as you reveal that Judge Doom is the bad guy in that movie. Uh, spoilers, <laughs> if you haven't seen it. Uh, that screwed me up as a kid. And it really messed up my younger sister, who was five years younger than me at the time. And she couldn't watch that movie for a while afterwards because that and the scene where he dips the shoe uh, were really hardcore for a kid. Uh, Number nine was The Room Full of Heads in Return to Oz. Man, you can take your wheelie, whatever they were, critters from that movie and stuff them. They're, They're freaky. Nothing messed me up as bad as this room of heads and the headless body running after Dorothy while the heads were screaming at her. That scene was freaking terrifying. This movie was awesome. Uh, I wish more people knew about it because that was it's kind of under the radar, but that was a really cool movie, but definitely scary for a kid. Uh, also scary for a kid. You could really do a lot of Don Bluth's movies, but I'm going to throw the one that messed me up the most as a kid, and that was Secret of Nim. Um, and there's a lot of ones I could have picked from this, whether it's the, the cat dragon at the beginning or the plow scene or just any of the scenes where the, uh, the, uh, the great owl scene. But um, the death of Nicodemus. But I, I've got to call out Jenner. What happens to the character of Jenner in the final confrontation and just how they portray him, just how evil he is. And just he turns like this wild-eyed, slavering monster. And they've got these anthropomorphic rats with these rat heads. So it, it's almost like a, it's, it looks a bit like a, like a werewolf, only it's a rat. And he's got a sword and he's just murderous. That messed me up. Messed me up as a kid. Uh, Number seven, Dark Crystal. I mean, pretty much all of Dark Crystal. But if I've got to pick one scene, uh, close second. Close second is when he's sucking out the souls of the pod people. But number one, dude, is just the emperor. The, The number one scene, the freakiest scene in that is the emperor. This little wizened, hissing creature that's dying in bed but he's just still so vicious he's like this dying rabid dog in bed only he looks like a some sort of evil dragon monster and he's he's just still spitting hatred and bile at ever all the other evil creatures in the room and then he collapses into a this ugly pile of dust and it's just for a kid to watch that oh my god my brains were leaking out my ears absolutely terrifying number six gremlins of course it had to be on here and it, gremlins has a lot of freaky parts too whether it's uh the way that they die at the end uh with the way was his name spike the way spike dies at the end of that movie where he just falls apart uh the the microwave scene uh the, the whole kitchen scene as a matter of fact but the me to me the scene that always messed me up was when they were in their cocoons and just the cocoons gave me the willies and right when they first came out like that was that's the part that really wigged me out was that these cute little furry things all of a sudden became these slimy, egg-like cocoons. Uh, the, 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 
the way the props were made on that, that's what stuck in my little juvenile mind. So yeah, Gremlins definitely on the list. Number five, this is a. Uh, I, I'm wondering how many people are going to feel me on this one. The Last Unicorn. Now, bear with me. The Last Unicorn. I know it sounds like the kiddiest of kid films, but I dare anyone out there to go watch The Last Unicorn and not be like they showed this to kids. It's Rankin Bass, which was a. They made kids movies. They made like the Hobbit cartoon. Um. And it is it's very dated. It's dated. Don't get me wrong. But this movie is, it should not be for kids. Uh, this is a movie that's got such adult themes in it uh, that I didn't pick up on until I was way, way older. But the scene that messed me up the most as a kid was Angela Lansbury plays an evil witch. And at one point, she's got a harpy that she's been holding captive. And the harpy gets out and kills her. And that scene, when the harpy finally kills her, uh, nightmares, nightmares for years. Oh, my God. I was absolutely, I remember the first time watching this movie, just being in tears on the couch for hours afterwards. This movie just utterly melted my childhood brain, and I have no problem admitting it. Yes, a movie called The Last Unicorn absolutely wrecked me. Number four, I think we all can get together on this. Uh, this was a toss-up, too. I, I had to go between Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and I really can't remember which one I watched first. So whichever one I actually watched first is the one I, that's for this list, but I'm going to list them both because I can't remember which one I saw first, whether it was the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Nazis all melt and explode and die, uh, or if it was the heart pull scene, Om Nam Shiva, Om Nam Shiva, Om Nam Shiva, from uh, Temple of Doom. Either one of those uh, are on this list. Whichever one I saw first, I don't remember, but that's, that's in the number four position. Anyone, from, anyone who's ever seen those movies, y'all can feel me on that. That's, oh, come on, PG for those, for that? That's gnarlier than some horror movies now. That's gnarlier than some horror movies then. Both of those scenes. Are you kidding me? Kids movies? Come on. Number three was the scene in Poltergeist. There's a bunch of scenes in Poltergeist that this could have been. There's a ton of the clown, the pool with the skeletons in it. There's a ton of scenes. The big horse ghost outside the door. Whatever. There's a ton of scenes. The one that did it for me, and I, I would say this is probably my first experience with Lovecraftian horror, was when the dad starts pulling the rope back through the doorway and she's like don't pull the rope back and all of a sudden this gigantic skeleton head face 15 feet tall comes bursting through this portal to another dimension and screams at craig t nelson i i probably i don't know if i pooped myself but i might have pooped myself when i first saw that because here was this entity from another dimension that we'd only ever heard of was this huge destructive force. And here it was manifesting corporeally in our space. And it was so beyond anything that I could have imagined at that time that it it absolutely melted my brain and probably my shorts as well. So yeah, number three was that scene in Poltergeist. Unbelievable. Number two, man, it was really hard not to make this number one because for the longest time, I would always say this is the scariest thing I ever saw as a kid. But never-ending story. And I know that anyone in my generation has a story about never-ending story and what it did to them. (laughs) And usually it's the horse in the swamp. But the scene that I'm talking about here is the one that freaked me out the most. And sure, there's the existential dread that's in that movie that that messes up kids. 
Uh, <laughs> that's a story for another day. The wolf, the, the mork, I think it's called. At the end, when the boy is wandering, Atreyu is wandering around the ruins and he sees the paintings of his whole journey. And, oh, there's, a, there's the painting of me getting a, my assignment from the princess. And there's the painting of me losing the horse in the swamps. And there's the painting of me with the luck dragon. And there's the painting of me uh, in the ruins with the giant wolf in the walls. Wait, what? And he turns around. The wolf's right there. He's right there behind him the entire time. Starts snarling. The lightning crashes. And little me was never the same again. I was ruined ruined for years i actually remember the next time i saw this movie was when i was 13 and even then i had to watch it from around a corner when i was 13 13 i had to watch it from around a corner and i watched it first when i was like i think six uh this movie messed me up forever forever this scene and the only thing that messed me up more the only thing number one watership down just the whole movie I, if you haven't seen Watership Down, I have actually shown it in uh, nights where we were having like horror movie night, and I've said this is a horror movie, and people are like, are you kidding me? It's a cartoon about rabbits. And I said, nope, it's a horror movie. If you've never seen Watership Down, the original cartoon, not the new one on Netflix, the original British cartoon, it is a horror film, full stop. If you don't understand why I say that, go watch it, and you will understand. So that is the top 10 Horrific moments from my childhood that absolutely messed me up. What were your most disturbing moments from your supposed kids' movies that you watched as a child? I would love to hear from you guys. Tweet me at Serene Dangerous or at Skinless Wonder. Hit me up on Instagram. I would love to know what your scariest movies from kids' movies were because not everyone listening to the show is from the same generation. We're all from different generations. I'm sure you had ones that messed you up that I never would have even thought of, and I want to know what they are also don't forget to tweet at me your underrated horror movies i want to know what those are movies you think everyone should hear about i'm going to announce those on the final episode of horror palooza for this season and that is it for this week join me next week for numbers 15 through 21 will i get the 50s decade will i get the other two languages i need stick around and find out tweet me those movies at Surrey and dangerous at skinless wonder and thank you very much for joining us right here on 